The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jane Grover. She is actually a dentist with a master's in public health. She is the director of the Council on Access, Prevention, and Interprofessional Relations for the American Dental Association. I had the pleasure of hearing her speak at an Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting in Cleveland this spring, and I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity for us to talk about access to dental care as well as what we can do as a society to make sure people had greater access. Dr. Grover received her degree in dentistry from the University of Michigan School of Dentistry and her Master's of Public Health degree from the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Grover. Well, thank you, Melinda. Thanks for having me. Well, you were such a wonderful asset on the panel in Cleveland, and there were so many issues that I think we need to talk about But one of the things that has concerned me so much as a registered dietitian is the fact that I recommend wonderful foods to keep people healthy. We know how to prevent chronic disease when it comes to food, or we think we do anyway. We've got a pretty good idea. Sure. But people need teeth to eat those foods. And I've been looking at some different statistics. I found one from the National Association of Dental Plans that said, Over 100 million Americans have no dental coverage, and 67.7 million of those are under 65 years of age. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you know about access and what is preventing us from providing dental care for people. Well, you're asking some great questions here, and it's a topic that the American Dental Association has always been very concerned about, and it's an issue that we continue to advocate for on the state and local level. And my past background as a dental director and a clinician at a federally qualified health center, and there are, as you know, thousands of community health centers across the country, and I'm confident that many dental directors experienced what I did over the years, and that was patients that came in and said, you know, I didn't know there was a dental clinic here. How long have you been open? And I would say, oh, 10 years. We've been here 10 years. So the connectivity piece is very important to us, which is why we launched the Action for Dental Health in 2013, a series of eight initiatives that involve providing care now, strengthening the safety net, and promoting prevention. And you know from your experience with educating folks on healthy foods that there are ways to stay healthy and there are some great strategies that people can employ. But with regard to access, we believe that there are so many opportunities to promote access, and that's something that our members certainly do across the country. Okay, let's talk about these community health centers, because I think this is a great avenue for helping people see that there might be care available that they're not aware of. I'm assuming every state has community health centers, but what about in terms of different cities in these states? Mm -hmm. How accessible are these centers? Well, the centers are actually very accessible, And again, speaking from 12 years' experience in Michigan, which was where the health center that I worked at is located, 
not only are there over 1,200 community health centers, but each of those health centers has satellite offices, and many health centers contract with local dental offices. Health centers are an amazing entity, and they also provide transportation and translation services, also called case management. So they have enabling services to get people into care. One of the challenges is that, unfortunately, they tend to be a well-kept secret. And even as the building may be located in the center of town or there may be opportunities for people to access care, well, they don't know what they need and they don't know what's really going on in that building. And again, I can share with you that the national average is only one out of five medical users of a community health center access dental treatment. So many times they walk right by the dental clinic and that's a challenge. So promoting where there's care available and underutilized care is really an amazing opportunity to get people into care. Oh, I agree. Okay, now if we want to try to find where these centers are, how do we access that information? Well, there's a wonderful organization called the National Association of Community Health Centers, or NAC, N-A-C-H-C, and you know how many acronyms there are right. uh, in the healthcare world, but the National Association of Community Health Centers has a comprehensive list on their website, Additionally, every state has a primary care association, and the primary care associations really provide a lot of guidance and support for all the community health centers in a particular state, and they tend to be great resources for navigating patients into care. Well, this is such great news, Dr. Grover. Now, how are these centers funded? Well, part of the funding for a federally qualified health center, also known as an FQHC, is from Section 330, the Public Health Act, and that provides on a yearly basis a certain level of funding, federal funding for a community health center. Additional funding for a community health center also comes from the state, primary care association and state uh, legislative actions that provide support for community health centers. But they also charge for their services. However, they are not allowed to turn anyone away Mm. based on ability to pay. Interesting. And they must provide a sliding fee scale. So even if patients have no coverage whatsoever, they still have access. This is wonderful. Are the services limited in terms of, I'm assuming they'll provide a checkup, will they provide preventive services such as cleaning as well as fillings? What about things like repairs on teeth? Well, absolutely. You know, there are many health centers, and and again, speaking from experience, Many health centers not only have dental students spending part of their educational career within a community health center, but the proliferation of dental residency programs has now caused many dental departments in community health centers to be providing full-service dental services. And we're talking implants, dentures, but predominantly the services are preventive and restorative and emergency care. This is wonderful. You know, years ago, I was in a a shuttle from the airport, and the gentleman who was driving, we were just with each other in the vehicle, was just myself as a passenger. And the young man was really self-conscious because he had some decay on his teeth and he had some missing teeth. And he said, you know, I just wish I could smile. It would really boost my confidence. And I know a lot of times those kinds of services are considered cosmetic. And maybe they are not covered to the level that, say, an extraction would be or a filling might be. Mm -hmm. Will these community services provide that kind of care, too? 
Absolutely, because decay on anterior teeth is really part of the disease process of dental decay. And so restoring front teeth is absolutely within the vast majority of community health centers' scope of practice. That's exactly what they set out to do, to restore teeth that have been decayed. Mm. And in some cases, the cosmetic type of dental services, such as crown and bridge or veneers, well, those may be considered cosmetic services. However, I will tell you again from experience that residency programs have clinical requirements, and many patients that needed these types of services received them because they were on the priority list of the residents. They have to do so many procedures of various kinds. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity for patients to receive those kinds of services as well. Oh, that's terrific news. Okay, let's talk about what's going on nationally since you are the national director. Are there some states that are more likely to fund these kinds of services than others? You know, are there some states that are, you know, you look at the national averages and you say, wow, this one state seems to be moving really in a progressive fashion, funding this kind of preventive care, where other states might be cutting back on those services? Well, you raise an excellent point, and the American Dental Association continues to advocate with state societies to secure the best possible dental benefits for families. And we all know that state budgets are subject to a tremendous amount of stress and concern. And certainly, it's a national average that has been noticed by many of our members that states allocate about 2 to 3% of their state budget for oral health services. We like to think that 2 to 3% is, is not very much, but it's interesting that that's the percent that tends to get cut when states want to balance their budget. Hmm. You're absolutely correct in that some states have a very robust oral health program offered to the public, and those states do tend to set some great records in terms of dentist participation and patients being able to have those services met. Yeah. I am sure that you have looked at the statistics on the relationship between having preventive dental health care and costs down the road. So, for example, also while I was preparing for this interview and I was visiting these different sites to look at some statistics, I saw one that said that without dental benefits, there's a higher incidence of other illnesses such as 67% more likely to have heart disease, mm-hmm. 50% more likely to have osteoporosis, more likely to have diabetes. I mean, I don't think many times we connect the dots between the health of our teeth and long-term chronic diseases that are really breaking the economy of this country. Well, you're exactly correct, and you raise an excellent point. We know that the mouth is connected to the rest of the body. That's, That's just a fact. And the American Heart Association actually published a statement in April of 2012 supporting an association between gum disease and heart disease. Now, there's a lot of emerging science that continues to evolve, and we know that the direct correlation has, there's just an as yet unexplained association between gum disease and several serious health conditions, including heart disease, after they adjust for common risk factors. But there are some emerging studies, most notably a recent one from our Health Policy Institute, the HPI folks, at the American Dental Association, that diabetic patients that have had periodontal therapy realize a cost savings. And the cost savings is an average of twelve to $1,300 per patient. 
when you multiply that by the millions of diabetics in the country, it's remarkable what can be saved down the road if people have those preventive services rendered on an ongoing basis. We know that health literacy is a key part of this as well. We want patients to understand the value of oral health as it pertains to the rest of their health. And as you know, health literacy is another very hot topic in healthcare today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that if you look at what some of the new frontiers are, certainly in medicine and nutrition and where they intersect, looking at the microbiome, of course, is so fascinating. And I know that we've looked at bacteria in the mouth with regard to gum disease and heart disease, but I'm also thinking of the wonderful high-fiber foods that are necessary, they're called prebiotic foods, to mm-hmm. nourish the microbiota in our guts that also promote health. So once again, we need our teeth to be able to chew those high-fiber foods. Exactly. And this is the case that we make for so many patients, particularly those that, again, speaking from experience at the health center, when I would see uh, particularly young women that would be smokers, and unfortunately had a diet that encouraged formation of dental decay or that supported they were considered a high-risk patient because of their dietary choices and also coupled with smoking, we know that women don't hang on to bone the way men do. Mm-hmm. And as women lose back teeth, they're also losing the bone support for those teeth. And so it's very important to exactly maintain those teeth so that you can enjoy those high-fiber foods and certainly uh, enjoy the health benefits from that. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Jane Grover. She is the Director of the Council on Access, Prevention, and Interprofessional Relations in the Division of Government Public Affairs at the American Dental Association. Dr. Grover, I want to bring up an issue that has been certainly on my radar screen for decades, and that has to do with the promotion of sugar-sweetened beverages to our youth. And these beverages, of course, are everywhere. I think things are getting better in that a lot of schools have removed them from the vending machines. But schools are so dependent on these sugar-sweetened beverage sales to fund, say, their sports program or their music programs, Mm -hmm. that when my children were young and in school, it was very difficult to advocate for their removal. I know that as a dentist and with your degree in public health, this is an issue for you as well. What kind of trends have you seen, and what can you tell our listeners about these beverages? Well, I will share with you that uh, in my dental director days, I did go before our local school board and talked about the opportunity to put different types of beverages in the machine. Now, we realize that, of course, juices and other drinks can provide a sugar intake that's less than ideal. And we know that there's a trend towards water now. And, and in fact, I just read an article in the Chicago Tribune, an interview with a running back from the San Diego Chargers who now advocates that what has kept him competitive was the fact that he drinks water. Wow. He drinks water and he believes in a well-balanced diet that's nutritionally sound. And, you know, you and I can talk to our families Moms across the country can talk to their families, but when a football player... Exactly. Okay, so he's the expert, and so he's a big advocate for sipping water and the fact that children and athletes of all ages perform better with well-balanced diets. You should also be aware that the World Health Organization, the the WHO, 
recently updated their guidance of free sugar intake, and I'm sure with your background uh, you are totally up on this, to reduce the risk. And now they're now advocating that free sugars be no more than 10% of daily consumption. Yeah. So that's an interesting fact from the World Health Organization. Right. You know, what we really need to do is have this football hero <laughs> speak during the big Super Bowl, the halftime event, and send that message. Because really, we as healthcare providers are up against a huge media machine mm-hmm. that has so many millions of dollars devoted to the sale of these beverages. I'm sure you share my frustration in the small budgets that we have to get mm-hmm. through all of that media madness. But as you say, if, if there is a spokesperson from a football team saying that it was water that kept him competitive, that's really working in our favor. Absolutely. And when a player like that steps forward and, and realizes that what he says is taken so seriously by the younger folks in this country, that's really important. I applaud him for doing that, and you're right. We absolutely need more folks doing that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about sports drinks, only because I think there is an assumption that sports drinks are somehow better for us than soft drinks or sodas. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the acidity of these different beverages and how they affect the teeth. Well, as you know, science tells us that an acidic environment tends to dissolve things. Ask any sophomore student in high school what they learned in chemistry class about pH and balance. We know that acidic environments over a long period of time or on a repeated basis tend to dissolve things and have a dissolving type of effect. So tooth enamel being as special as it is, we certainly advise patients to really watch the consumption in between meals in particular about what's hitting their enamel and stressing the opportunity to chew sugarless gum, sip water, and have regular brushing and flossing. I'll share an interesting story with you from a young teenager. I think she was a junior in, in high school and just spectacular oral health, beautiful gums, beautiful enamel, not a cavity in her head. And I said, wow, What's your secret? I mean, this is really great. We're going to make you a poster girl. And I said, so what do you sip all day? And she shared a beverage with me that happens to be a pre-sweetened beverage. And I said, really? And she said, yes, but I'll tell you, I brush my teeth gently and thoroughly five or six times per day. So that was really interesting. So the consumption patterns, as you know, we struggle with. Yes. But somebody who steps up their oral hygiene to that extent doesn't see the effects that we see in other people, unfortunately. That's very interesting. So we should be selling a can of soda with a toothbrush. (laughs) Well, I'm confident that some of my colleagues would applaud that. (laughs) We don't have an official position on that. We do believe in brushing and certainly want to promote that particular aspect of oral health. And it's just one of those remarkable practices that continues to provide great benefit for patients. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you just came back from the National Oral Health Conference. Was there anything that you learned there that's new and exciting that you want to share with our listeners? Well, you know, that's a great conference. I always learn from that conference, and that's put on by two fabulous groups, the American Association of Public Health Dentistry and also the American Association of State and Territorial Dental Directors. 
and the great opportunity that comes about with this meeting is the fact that about 800 healthcare individuals come together for the purposes of sharing best practices and, and sharing stories. And I always learn something at this meeting. And one of the sessions that I attended was about another hot topic that's continuing to evolve, and that's on interprofessional care, interprofessional communication between dental clinics, dentists, and physicians. The physicians are very engaged now with regard to how oral health can impact the overall health of a patient. And again, going back to my days at the health center, I would get calls every week from radiation oncology, from orthopedic surgery, OBGYN, for physician offices that had a question on when can we get our patients in, how can we advocate for total health care for this patient. And we were delighted to work with those practitioners. That was a major theme at, at NOIC this year, the National Oral Health Conference, and you probably noticed that as well. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to access because... One of the issues that comes up, if a person is not accessing a community health center, mm-hmm. if you've got health insurance, for example, mm-hmm. oftentimes the dental component is not covered with health mm-hmm. insurance, or if it is, it's a super high deductible, doesn't really cover much. Mm-hmm. So you've got people who are maybe not eligible for services at the community health center, or if everyone went to their community health center, I could see how it would be overrun by need. Mm-hmm. What is the Dental Association doing in terms of working with insurance to get greater or better coverage? Well, another great question. We certainly support uh, dental benefits on a state level and have worked with our state associations again, to advocate for the best possible dental benefits for families from some of the state exchanges and also from state Medicaid programs. But in working, to get back to an earlier comment you made, that if community health centers had everybody show up, they'd be overrun, I will share with you that a particular state primary care association wants me to come to their June annual meeting to talk about our community dental health coordinator program because the no-show rate Mm. in the dental department is about 50%. And so it's true that health center dental departments can be busy places, but transportation, translation, you know, there are some struggles with folks to make those appointments, and health centers do the best they can to lower those barriers, but it's still a challenge. I'll also offer that dental schools and dental hygiene programs, we had several in the area of our community health center, and I would advise patients, did you know that you could go to this dental hygiene training program, which was exceptional, one of the best in the state of Michigan. And I said, you can get your teeth cleaned and x-rayed and get an examination uh, for about 25 to $30. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, oh, I didn't know that. So it's the I didn't know that factor that we and our members are working to reduce. Connecting people with care at the right time is one of the major themes that we are working with right now. In terms of advocating for greater benefits, With regard to people who are working, they have health insurance, but they're underinsured. You know, that seems to be the situation with many people who have health insurance. There's this level of undercoverage. What can we do as policy advocates? Is it simply a matter of calling our legislators? I think many of us feel like we hit our heads against the wall or maybe our phone calls don't matter. But how can we stay informed in terms of 
maybe an action alert, for example, when to call our senators and representatives about specific policy issues that are important so we can help move forward to help people gain greater access. You're absolutely correct that it is important to work with legislators to ensure that folks have access to dental services. I'll share with you that, you know, when you mention Action Alert, the state dental associations are very effective at promoting the time to call and to sit down with legislators. And, you know, this is an election year, as you know, Melinda. And uh, election years are, are remarkable in that they afford people the opportunity to go to town hall meetings and talk with legislators and talk with their health aides in particular to voice the opinion on this particular issue. The other piece of this is, again, the primary care associations who are extremely influential in their state capitals. They are probably one of the strongest voices for people within a state to have access to these services. One of the points you made earlier about what's so wonderful about having these annual meetings where different professionals come together, I think for our listeners who have a connection to a health profession, whether it's a nurse, a physician, a dietitian, the idea of saying, you know what, let's think a little bit broadly here and see if we can't communicate more with dental care providers to make sure that we are working together when it comes to a policy action. Absolutely. I think that if health providers join together for the benefit of the patient and the fact that we want their health outcomes to be maximized, we've got an opportunity to work together. And I think that when we work together to advocate for these better outcomes and a better patient experience, we're not only going to find that it reduces the disease levels, but it's going to reduce costs in the long term as well. Absolutely. We have a couple of minutes left, so I want to give you an opportunity to bring forth anything that I may have not touched on that you think is important for our listeners to know. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show and talk about these wonderful topics. And I appreciate the opportunity that as a professional that you have a show that is interested in informing and educating consumers, patients, families, moms. We know moms are the quarterbacks of their family care. Right. And the fact that the more knowledge people have about issues that oral health can affect the rest of their health and that it impacts so many disease outcomes, we think that this is a message worth spreading, and we certainly want to congratulate the people that, that help us get the message out. Do you advocate the MouthHealthy.org website for people who want to learn more? Absolutely. MouthHealthy.org is one of the finest websites, and I don't just say that because it's ours, but I say that because the consumer information there is really well-worded and it's timely. People will get useful information. They're not going to get a whole lot of studies that they will find a, a great deal of reading. They're going to find useful information uh, in an easily understandable format. The Two Men by 2X uh, and the Scholastic uh, Project that we've worked with to get this type of message into schools, to brushing at least two minutes twice a day, uh, we've seen a tremendous uptick in the use of accessing our website. So we're delighted to promote MouthHealthy.org and, of course, our wonderful message of two men, two X. 
That's great. Well, I will make sure to link our interview to that website. And as a dietitian, I have to put a plug in for the top nine foods that damage your teeth. That's what I really liked on that site. (laughs) But our time is up, so I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Grover, for being my guest. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Dr. Jane Grover. She is director of the Council on Access, Prevention, and Interprofessional Relations in the Division of Government, Public Affairs at the American Dental Association. I had the pleasure of hearing her speak at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting in Cleveland. Thank you so much, Dr. Grover, for your work. Thank you, Mullen, for your work, and it was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks very much. 